are listening to the It's Always Friday the 13th podcast. I am John Evans. Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek are joining me again this week. We are talking about part five. How are you guys? Excellent. Very good, guys. Let's set the stage for this film. Uh, it came out in 1985, poorly reviewed uh, to the dismay or surprise of no one. And uh, actually, because of the power of the brand and the franchise and American taste, it still debuted at number one on its opening weekend, $8 million domestic. And it's still, in the end, though, bad word of mouth got around because it earned only $21.9 million, uh in the course of its run. So it was number 41 on the list of box office earners for 19. 19- 85, but uh, it's developed somewhat of a cult following for being so bad it's good. The word, the title Troll 2 came to mind for me watching it. Uh, so, you know, it's it's fun. I'll say that. So the basics of the plot are this. Uh, we pick things up with Tommy Jarvis, the kid from Part 4, is now being transferred to a new mental facility. He's been um, under doctor's care, apparently since the last movie, due to the traumatic Jason-related events. And now he's going to a softer and gentler uh, halfway house kind of a place where they're trying to reintegrate troubled teens back into society. And um, it's a collection of slightly eccentric teenagers, for the most part, with the exception of uh, one kind of obviously violent and dangerous guy who um, kills one of his fellow, uh, you know, camp mates or whatever you want to call it. He kills one of the other kids. And that triggers a chain of murders because uh, we learned that the ambulance driver who works in these parts was actually the illegitimate, apparently, father of the kid who is murdered. And he dons a Jason mask and even concocts Jason makeup for himself or a mask um, of Jason's actual head head and face. And he starts uh, knocking off these young and hornies uh, one by one. And we have the largest body count to date uh, in this series. It's, It's enormous, this cast, and people are always just being set up dream sequence involving Corey Feldman returning to reprise his role. Mike, what did you think about the um, opening sequence of part five, a new beginning? Well, uh, it's been a little while since I've seen this film, but uh, the one thing that stuck out in my mind was the scene in which a couple of guys dig up Jason Voorhees' grave in the middle of a rainstorm and uh, never have they been so entertained by anything because they spend the entire thing going woohoo yahoo woo yeah dig it man dig it faster dig it dig it <laughs> and uh that that kind of sets the tone for everything in this movie because i nothing uh, nothing anybody says or does actually makes any real sense and uh no one can actually do anything without like kind of this weird running commentary and that includes like these two guys who are just like yeah man we're digging them up Dig it. Yeah. Woohoo. Wow. Oh my God. This is so cool. Wow. And uh, the, the entire time, uh, Corey Fullman playing uh, Tommy Jarvis is standing. Uh, apparently, they shot this in his backyard. 
and uh, he's standing under a tree watching these two yahoos uh, dig up Jason Voorhees. Yeah, these drunk assholes uh, in a pouring rain while Tommy watches pensively and does a weird tongue thing. The really bad acting by everyone in this uh, sequence, including Corey Feldman. You're right, Mike. It does set the tone for what's going to follow because it's it's totally ludicrous. Vic? I will say, uh, I mean, obviously, yes, totally ludicrous. Um, but I would say that the the most effective parts of the movie to me are these these kind of dream sequences like this yes uh, you know when when jason like it they do make some good use of what's become this this iconic visage that when you see him sit up in the grave that's worth pointing out that they're all woohooing and digging because jason is buried about six inches uh, <laughs> yeah the, <laughs> the they're, really, they're really happy that this won't take long yeah, yeah, he's got I, this hand-painted tombstone. It's, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, again, that that a lot of that I I you know plays into the just the dream imagery, I suppose, of it that you can sort of go, well, it's just a dream, that's fine. Um, right, but it is like it is, it is creepy when Jason sits up at the you know out of the uh, out of his grave and and stands up. That guy in a hockey mask with a machete is still a, is still a creepy image. Um, yeah, he it, commands the screen, doesn't he? If they make any good use of it, it is it is in this scene and in a uh, just again a few other brief, uh, dreamy appearances uh, throughout the throughout the film. Yeah, the, the scene does uh, give us the first true look at a zombie Jason because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you can't even you know dodge it around like you do at the beginning of four. And this one, it's he's dead, he's buried, he's covered with worms. He someone decided to bury him with a machete. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, let's bury him with his favorite machete. But uh, it also reintroduces uh, something that the series has lost for the co- last couple of episodes, which is the use of dream imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, as we pointed out, you know, the first three movies uh, that was actually kind of fairly heavy, and in four, it's just uh, you know a rampage. There's zero thought given to any character's psychology or the dreamlike imagery that or references that we saw in the earlier films. And we actually kind of come full circle back to that. So in that theoretical manner, it's interesting. This sequence is one of the few that I derive, you know, much uh, honest pleasure from, you know, not like sort of snickering at the movie or cackling or whatever else I might be doing at it. Um, I did think that this vision or version of Jason is, is menacing. He has a different build. Like it's interesting. The mask seems to cover up his entire head now, like maybe because they just didn't want to shell out for making the rotted head, uh, visible, but previously like his head is kind of bulging around the edges of the mask. And it's just like, you can see as this misshapen large skull and the mask kind of, you know, just hangs over his face. But in this, you know, it encompasses, encompasses his entire head and he's also like the the clothes are baggier on him like he just has a different look but it's uh it's menacing and i think that uh as you said vic just the pure power the residual mojo that jason has already accrued um they're just banking on that here and you know it still works so it was fun to see and after that like we're delving into the more ridiculous aspects of this story because Tommy is on his way to the nuthouse or from the nuthouse, the Unger Institute of mental health. Now he's going to this, uh, 
Pinewood place, Pinehurst place. It's years later. He's grown up some. I guess he's in his early 20s, wouldn't you think? We have the sleazy, balding, orderly type uh, holding down the fort in this series is the odious guy you can't wait to see killed. Um, trucking him, you know, to Pinehurst. And then we meet the earnest shrink chick who's called, named Pamela. And, uh, cause we have to recycle names in this series, mm-hmm. uh, you know, can't, can't have new names. And Tommy is sullen and withdrawn. And basically they want him to reenter society. Uh, he's been on a lot of drugs and all of this is, is more or less his performance is just two, two speeds. He can gaze longingly at a still from the previous movie, like looking at his, his mother and his sister, or he can be sullen and withdrawn. And, and that's about all you get from John Shepard as the actor playing the older Tommy. Uh, to be fair, he also kicks a lot of ass. That's but true. Yes. I was struck by the, the kind of, uh, and I feel like this was a staple of the 80s, the, the Michael Dudikoff, American Ninja-ish way that <laughs> dispatch people. Like that somehow in the 80s, you just you had to know karate we kept waiting for Billy Babka to to come out of the woods and, and fight with him, but yeah. Jeff Speakman. Jeff Jeff Speakman, that's right, the perfect weapon. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention the logo and the feel of the opening titles is very much makes you feel like you're watching a Friday the Thirteenth movie. The continuity from the previous films of like Friday the Thirteenth, the actual font in this one though, like the hockey mask has taken over. It's going to be the embodiment of evil. They're they're basically telling the audience it's the mask that matters here, not Jason. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of the the intriguing conceptual thing about this movie is that we could have gone off in a new direction. That was the idea here was that we're going to have a trilogy of new films that would have a different killer every time. And maybe the mask and or Crystal Lake would just be sort of jumping around what do you guys think about that as as the point of departure here i understand why they did it i suppose i mean the idea was well we we, if you're going to hew to what's happened up to this point you sort of want to accept all right well jason's dead but there's still money to be made how can we how can we do this um and i think it's a it's a terrible miscalculation because Jason, again, as we talked about the, the, the evolution of the, the movies up to this point, Jason is the hero. Jason is the Jason is what we're coming to see. Um, and it was uh, I, I understand why they did it. I think it was a, it was a mistake to think that you could just put anybody in that hockey mask and that would that would suffice, as, as was evident, obviously, by the fact that they, in part six, decided to go back and, and figure out a way to bring back Jason. The other thing that they're kind of going full circle with in this one is uh, is the whodunit aspect. Right. Uh, in this one, we you know it's again playing the game that we don't know who's running around and killing people, uh, and we haven't seen that since one, really. There's a supernatural element going on in this in this franchise, and uh, I think this is the one that really starts to bring its toes right up to the line of it. Uh, the idea that you know just the the concept of Jason Voorhees has become such a, uh, an iconic uh, thing that the world can no longer stand not having him. You know, so it will create a Jason Voorhees out of uh, whoever's you know damaged and broken enough. 
uh, accepted as his spirit, quote unquote. You know, yeah. so I, uh, you know, I, it's it's almost meta in a way because I, I, this movie is like purely, obviously made just to make money based off the franchise. So I'm kind of within the real world and also within the film world. Like we can no longer just not have Friday Thirteenth movies anymore. I mean, the character will come back in some way, and there's, I mean, there's something kind of cool and intriguing about that and uh you know had it been in a better film i i think this would be uh, a classic of the genre we should note that nightmare on elm street came out the year before this film and i think it feels somewhat influenced by it i mean i think the way that they approach the nightmares in this movie it it feels like night this is a the first post nightmare on elm street friday the 13th Reggie the Reckless is the character that we meet next. Um, little African-American kid that comes in with a rubber spider and tries to scare Tommy. And Tommy gets out his, his, his knife and his masks, and he's got all of these masks. And Reggie says, you act like you made these things or something. Mm-hmm. And then Tommy says, I did. And then Reggie says, solid. Well, got to split. Catch you later. There's action. Yeah, <laughs> the level of dialogue uh, won't quite get this film an Academy Award. When they're trying to come up with the the street lingo, like it's this old, you know, fifty-ish screenwriter just being racking his brain. Oh, what yeah. are those kids saying on the street now? Yeah, every single character in this entire movie is played as broad as possible. If the character is a redneck, then they're like super cartoony redneck. If, uh, you know, they're, uh, can't, you know, like the new wave girl is, uh, you know, a cartoon as that, like, like there are no actual human beings in this entire movie. Cartoonish uh, yeah, is exactly the word that came to my mind repeatedly while I was watching this. Yeah. And, uh, I, that's, uh, I mean, in terms of coming full circle, uh, this is the movie that reminds me the most of three. And, uh, the thing that stuck out, uh, with me on three was the entire movie felt like the people who had, who were making it were thinking to themselves, okay, these are movies for 13 year old boys. So that doesn't mean it has to actually be good. And, uh, we can actually have these really broad, super broad characters saying really stupid, broad things. And, uh, you know, the audience doesn't care. I mean, so long as we chop up some chick every seven or eight minutes, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it just didn't feel like that was the, the driving instinct between one, two and four. Well, no. and it's re- it's refreshing to see that the audience actually did go. Eh, this isn't very good. While they still made money, I think that again that calculation was wrong. Yeah, um, I, I, I did want to bring up very quickly uh, talking about Reggie um, and the the kind of hi- hypothetical alternate universe where this actually turned out well. Um, I wonder, do you think that they were setting this up where Reggie would take over the Tommy Jarvis part? Um, huh. which is to say that if, if, you know, part six had been a continuation of this, this exact story, Tommy Jarvis has filled in for, for Jason and we're dealing with a, a grown up or an older, you know, Reggie, uh, dealing with that because that would have been one of the first introductions of a minority character, uh, as the, the main lead of a slasher film. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I, and you're not. Too far off the mark because I the thing that makes Tommy Jarvis Tommy Jarvis is the fact that he uh, he loses his mom to Jason's rampage and uh, he has to use his wits and cleverness in order to defeat the killer. 
at the end. And uh, in this one, uh, poor Reckless loses not only his sweet, kindly grandfather, but also uh, Demon, his older brother, who's by far the most entertaining character in this movie for me. Wait, uh, uh, is it is it Demon? It's Demon, right? so the point is he loses not one but two close family members and now he is uh orphaned and we could eat and uh he's also the kid who like tommy jarvis in part four rises to the challenge and uses his wits and cleverness to help defeat the the monster blah 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 so i mean yeah it is kind of set up that i I, you know there is a hypothetical version of six in which we open, Tommy Jarvis is now Jason, inhabited with Jason Voorhees' uh, uh, spirit. Yeah, and uh, we've got Reggie the Reckless is our protagonist. And uh, he becomes almost almost like the uh, the hunter guy in part four. Yeah. Part four and part five could be seen like, uh, it takes us two movies, but this is sort of like with the Star Wars prequels like this is how Darth Vader became Darth Vader and yeah. you know in, in in this series it could be well this is how this nice kid finally you know became his shadow self which is which is Jason it would have been intriguing to see like how they pass it on you know like is the next like is Tommy does Reggie kill Tommy and then what what form does the evil take from there you know is it that the mask you know, changes hands and, you know, people are compelled to put on the mask in some way. I mean, I don't know, like it, it, it could become something interesting, but uh, instead we have to dig up Jason. But, uh, you know, hey, I miss the guy because uh, he is the best part of this movie when he shows up in those little flashbacks. The next scene that takes place that's somewhat uh, noteworthy is when we meet Matt, the leader of this, you know, he's the psychiatrist in charge of this little operation he's kind of like a poor man's version of patrick duffy from dallas if that makes any sense right yeah yeah (laughs) he he does seem like exactly that dude who was like a day player in episodes of like bonanza and uh (laughs) and showing up on uh like soap operas and whatnot you know he's got that kind of late 70s to mid 80s kind of clean cut you know dad-ish kind of dude presence Right. Uh, and I, I guess in that sense, he's cast well, but, you know, whereas in two, uh, Paul is, uh, on the surface, like this really square, like Fred from Scooby-Doo t- kind of dude, but, you know, he's given like enough interesting beats that there's actually way more stuff going on with that character and makes him a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, sad to say, but this guy is just no Paul. We got a sheriff who is super broad. Uh, has lines like "Just get moving, wise guy." Um, yeah. It let's 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 touch on this sheriff for a moment because I I, I can't confirm this because I'm not an expert in uh, uh, hair uh, styling and whatnot, but <laughs> I'm convinced to the point of distraction that they colored his hair gray. <laughs> uh, it looks really fake. It looks really weird. It looks like. You're on your way to a Halloween party, and you're playing a mad scientist, so you push, like, gray dye through your hair. And uh, I, I, every time this character showed up, I, I, I spent the entire scene staring at his head. I was like, why did they do it? 
<laughs> and why did they do it so badly if they're going to do it? Yeah, it's on par with the level of quality of the rest of this production. Yeah. But we have this scene with like 25 characters in it where everybody shows up and they're all rolling up on various vehicles and we're, you know, meeting all of these characters in one scene and I really kind of believe that their idea of directing in this film is, "Hey, let's get everybody together in one scene. It'll up the production value, it'll make the budget seem higher and Somehow that's the dynamic visual quality of this film is to crowd people into the frame. It, it I, makes I, no sense narratively. Now that I've had a little bit of time to think about it, I, I wonder if it, it's not like the, uh, you know, given that we have a whodunit aspect, I wonder if it's not the, uh, this movie's version of like in a dark old house movie, you get all of your characters together before they start dying one by one, you know, uh, and then we right. find out that was Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. And, but in this movie, because uh, our, our serial killer has the killer by every seven to 10 minutes or so, instead of like five or six characters, it's this gigantic mob. Yeah, <laughs> and all of these people are going to die by the end of the movie. Yeah, you're right. It is kind of like the drawing room scene or something yeah, in this hokey yeah. old movie. Yeah, yeah. except uh, here are like 10 kids and two counselors and then two rednecks show up and then three cops. And, and they're all uh, way over the top stereotypes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's like they, they have very – this is such a limited uh, – this is such a huge ensemble that every character is extremely limited amount of time to make an impression on the screen. So they just go as big as possible. <laughs> that reminds me of the mayor later. Uh, oh yeah the yeah. mayor comes yeah. in and hassles the sheriff and he's just cranks it up to 12 with the yeah. bug eyes and the big gesticulations and enunciating everything you know way more than it needs to be it's yeah. hilarious after that the we, we've got some kids doing laundry and uh poor joey the hapless helpless overweight uh chocolate eating man child uh, comes, you know, sauntering out to help the girls with the uh, laundry. And he fails, gets chocolate all over the sheet. And uh, they have a ugly little interchange. And he decides that he's going to go help the wild-eyed punk with the axe who is chopping wood with the ferocity of, like, someone dismembering his worst enemy. Because that's going to go well. And he's so fucking annoying, Joey, that you can believe the motivation, but it still feels random as hell when Victor, the uh, axe wielder, just decides to bury the axe in the back of the fat guy. Yeah, I, I, he, uh, I, you know, I, I, Joey does an excellent job of almost scrubbing my memory of my deep loathing uh, for Shelly in part three, because I mean, he is... <laughs> Yeah, I, he gets less screen time, but I, again, he, he gets less screen time, so he's got to—he's got to make the most of it. You know, if he's kind of a fat guy who likes to eat candy bars, it's not just that he's got candy bars poking out of every pocket. There's chocolate smeared all over his face. You know, he's, he's basically like a, a five-year-old child. You know, uh, and uh, you know, he has no—you know, no uh, connection with social cues. So you know, the girls chase him off, but he kind of wants to help, and he goes and talks to Vic and. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, even though he's a super annoying kid, and Vic is a super aggro dude, uh, it still comes almost completely. I don't know where, where Vic just kind of uh, hacks him to pieces. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a dream or something. It was so 
random and right, right. I, not I built fully, up to. Yeah, I was fully expecting Joey to like jump up out of uh, or, 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 or or you know cut to Tommy. Yeah, and Tommy is imagining people getting hacked off, and then he scrubs his eyes and feels goofy and. Oh no, I'm being haunted by Jason for you. But no, I and uh, Vic actually just kind of kills that dude. Um, I I was watching this with my, or at least up to uh, about this point, my wife was watching this with me. At, at which point, she got up and left the room. Um, <laughs> but, uh, my wife, for our, for our listeners' benefit, is a therapist, and she, I mean, the minute that Tommy checks into his room, she goes. Oh my God! They'd never let him. Like, look at all the thumbtacks in the board. Look at the extension cord and the light. Like, they, this is the worst mental hospital I've ever seen. Right, right up to the point where the guy, she's like, "Oh my God! They let him have an axe. Why would they give a mental patient an axe?" Well, I mean, Tommy's also got that that uh, that fold-out jackknife too. Exactly. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't check his bags or anything. Like, did he bring that from the old hospital? Well, I think they they try to. Yeah, exactly. It's like I mean, even if they try to sell you on the idea that uh, the rules are a, a lot looser around here because they're trying to, you know, these are the kids are trying to reintroduce to society. Yeah. So they're going to try. So they give them a lot of freedom. Um, you know, the they make the, that point. Yeah, I, I, I mean, they sit them down and they're just like, you know. We're not going to tell you what to do. You can do whatever you want, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, I, I, and it's still, you know, per this movie that they would still give the kid, like, a jackknife. And it was like, where was he keeping that? I mean, was, <laughs> yeah. was it next to the gold watch of his ass for 20 years? What was up? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but it does. I mean, one of the other questions that sort of raises for me is because you look at Vic, and which is just – disconcerting to say but um you you look at Vic and you're like all right well that guy's clearly bad news like I see what he did yeah but what are the rest of these people doing there like this almost like it you know it's you know the the two kids are are nymphomaniacs and one kid is kind of slow and you know one kid has a stutter like it's this is almost like a, a you know a mental hospital in the in the 40s when they were putting away people they deemed feeble-minded Vic, the uh, the point that you're bringing up uh, is something that touches on a pet peeve of mine, which uh, in older movies, what you would frequently see is if the story involved uh, that there were going to be people with uh, mental illness as part of the story, that they're all uh, like a bunch of like uh, clinger from MASH. Like everyone's just kind of... I got their kooky little quirk. Like, oh, well, this kid is, uh, he's in the halfway house because he wears grease in his hair and he's got a stutter. Vic, it is, it is like a, another indicator of um, writers from previous decades, you know, trying to take their own approach to this material. And that's a good segue to the next two characters who are 1950s greasers yeah. <laughs> for yeah. no reason yeah. at all. Yeah. It's either old screenwriters at work or bad costume designers or both. But these guys are wearing like outfits from an old Marlon Brando motorcycle gang movie. Yeah, they're, they're both dressed as Brando. And uh, these two characters also have a home. Another hallmark of this entire film is no characters in this entire movie have any kind of patience whatsoever. Uh, you know, they're always losing their shit and swearing and bickering at each other over nothing. And in this case, uh, we have the one guy who's like, all right, get out and fix the car. And while his friend's fixing the car, he spends the entire time going, I'm going to kick your ass if you don't fix the car. 
fix the car. I'm going to beat your ass. Well, I'd like to you fucking fix the car, dick. I do like the line. This is the only line in the entire movie that I marked as good. He says, either you got the car started or you're a dead man. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a true statement. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, oh, I got some dust in you. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's another you know, something that you see out of, uh, you know, older filmmakers is, uh, you know, whoa, I mean, they see in the script two thugs, you know, and their uh, immediate reach over is, uh, oh, well, obviously they're like two thugs from uh, Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil. Yes. Well, I think those guys were a lot better, obviously. I mean, the dialogue and acting is really wooden here. Um, a guy's got to take a crap. The other guy's like, crap my ass. And yeah. we have a <laughs> rabbit jump scare. I mean, it, the road flare is used to kill someone, but it's terrible. Uh, as, as the, the road flare was blinding this guy so much that he couldn't see who was holding it. <laughs> really poorly shot. I just, this sent me down a rabbit hole. I'd like to point out that one of the writers on this uh, has since become Quentin Tarantino's script supervisor. Wow. Yes, and has has credits on on Django and Inglorious Bastards and Death Proof and Kill Bill and Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction. Well, you can clearly see why uh, Q would hire him. I mean, yeah. this guy, he's got the chops, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bet Tarantino's familiar with his filmography. Is He did do the story for Meatballs Part 2, you know, so I'm sure Quentin Tarantino's seen that a hundred times. Well, yeah. uh, I mean, speaking of tropes, uh, there's one thing that I noticed in this movie. Uh, kind of in four, it was bodies flying through glass, and in this movie's it's uh, in this movie it's characters blinded by lights. Uh, and we we actually saw that gig in um, in the very first one, if you remember, uh, the mustachioed guy comes back to the camp, and Pamela Voorhees blinds him with a flashlight before stabbing him. And in this movie, we have uh, the bit with the flare. And then uh, there's another one where the redneck guy rides up on his motorcycle and blinds Tommy. Right. And then later on, uh, Reggie the Reckless uh, uh, stuns Jason Voorhees by, uh, or, you know, the ambulance driver, by turning on the lights on the tractor. You know, uh, yeah. there's a lot of uh, characters kind of holding one hand up in front of their faces and going, <laughs> who is that? I get one. Hi. What? <laughs> In the world of this movie, if you shine a light on somebody, then they're instantly confused and stunned. <laughs> yeah, all they can do is vaguely raise a hand and, and oh. squint. And <laughs> oh, what? Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got these really lame off-camera kills here. Um, they use the music from the previous two several films, but sparingly. Like it doesn't even have the same presence in the film uh mm -hmm. as it as it did before and so by this point you're like wow this is not going to be scary at all and then we meet the uh the old black guy the um grandfather or whatever the hell he is i would swear that reggie the reckless calls him uncle ribs but i might be wrong <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I really thought i heard that and the old guy is so lovey-dovey with him it's like you know you you would think that he hasn't seen the kid in six months, you know, and he's, oh, don't kiss me in front of people, Uncle Ribs. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah it's, that entire breakfast scene is one of the most gonzo things that, that I've seen. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, John, 
you, you had said, you know, you, you had brought up Troll 2 earlier. I'm like, nah, it's not that bad. But when you get to this breakfast scene, like, no line actually makes any real sense at all. Like, people yeah. are saying, like, random stuff. And it begins with the interaction between uh, Reggie the Reckless and his grandfather, where the grandfather, you know, where he's like, hey, I want to go see my brother Demon. And uh, grandfather was like, we'll see. And Reggie's immediate response is, like, is to storm over to the table and sit down and pout and complain. And it's like, there's no, and, goes, and then they make up with a big hug and a kiss. And Reggie squirms out of it, and it's like, like nothing feels like these people are humans ever at all. Uh, this feels like an entire movie that was created by aliens who had been observing Earth by watching old black and white movies, and <laughs> yeah. and, and decided to cobble together their own version of Friday the 13th movie. When we talk about George, my my first thought was that it was like the part was written with Scatman Crothers in mind. Which makes me think that the the archetypes for all of the for many of the people in the nut house seems to have been borrowed from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where you have, uh, you know, the stuttering this stuttering kid who reminds me of, of Brad Dourif in uh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and you have, uh, uh, oh, the you know the kind of big dumb slow kid who reminds me of well many people in in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but. <laughs> It's uh, uh, it just seems like, like you said, like this is this comes from a this comes from a movie, this comes from somebody who was watching something else and then doing a pale imitation of it. Um, well, you know what's interesting about that, Vic, is if we take the idea all the way down the road, then in Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, our final girl is Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> that's true, actually. Um, that's interesting. She actually does kind of have a Louise Fletcher like quality when mm -hmm. she's in, when we first meet her, she's so uptight and conservative. Um, yeah. Like I don't want to get into any of these characters in great detail cause they don't deserve it, but she is such a blah heroine. Like I don't, she doesn't have one decent beat in the whole movie other than when she's running around in the rain and not wearing a bra. Uh -huh. Yeah, she is our final girl purely by luck. Uh, yeah. She she makes almost zero impression as a character at all. Yeah. And I, she's vaguely protagonistic, you know. I uh, but she has very few beats, and uh, I mean, she's not even the hottest woman in the in the movie, you know. So, I mean, it's it's uh, by by numbers only that she ends up, and uh, yeah. So to cap off this uh, breakfast scene, we have another bad jump scare with a mask as one of the nympho kids pops out in the mask and as Vic mentioned we get to see the display of martial arts prowess from Tommy and it just plays as another random burst of crazy person violence which is what this movie thrives on <laughs> yeah because I, I the the guy uh, they, they asked Tommy to go fetch the guy yeah. for breakfast and, of course, Tommy, being the sullen teen that he is, uh, they have to ask him, like, four or five times in a gentle manner as if addressing a wild animal. And right. finally, uh, finally, he sullenly goes, okay. And he right. goes to the door to go fetch the guy. And the guy shows up, and he's late because he's been dicking around in Tommy's room and stole one of the masks. And this incenses uh, Tommy so much, but and, and, yeah, that he flips him into a table. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it's like a uh, it's a pro wrestling move. He, he yeah. picks him up and body slams him into a table, and then uh, uh, goes nuts on him. And everyone, but yeah, it's it's uh, 
obviously the, the, the breakfast scene is meant to show that uh, tempers are running high after the murder of Joey. And uh, so we have the characters just losing their shit over nothing. Like, but uh, they, it is really funny that Vi or whatever her name is, the punk rock chick, puts yeah. out plates for the the two people that aren't going to be there, and that's what kicks off the whole scene. Yeah, because she she uh, she sets the two extra plates, and uh, everyone's like, "Oh, Vi, you only you put out too many plates." She goes, "What do you mean?" And it's like, "Oh, well, Joey's not going to be coming back here." And Reggie says something like, uh, well, "Or any other day, why?" And that's when, and then, and that's when the stutter kid is just like, "You don't put out plates for dead people, Vi." <laughs> Fucking relax, dude. It's a plate. It's a plate on a table. It's all right. That shit nuts. This movie. So then we get the the two most cartoonish characters in the film. Um, that wasn't their first scene, but we we get another big scene with the woman with dirt caked all over her face and her her son, <laughs> Junior. The same age as well. <laughs> they look like they're the same age. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I, uh, again, per the sensibilities of this movie, uh, because they're rednecks and they live in the woods, then they're like super rednecks. I, I mean, these two make Bubba and Bobby Joe from Evil Dead 2 uh, look like nuanced. Uh, yeah, they, they make Buddy, Bubba and Bobby Joe look like uh, uh, characters from Justified. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, uh, I, sh- I would be remiss if I didn't mention the character of Robin, who is the redhead in the group. Uh, while I'm watching this movie, uh, I notice a name flash across the, the screen in the opening credits. And I'm like, Juliet Cummins. Hmm. Wait, where do I know that name? Oh, wait, that's who I write all of my rent checks out to every month. <laughs> really? Really. <laughs> my landlord is Robin in this film. She's also in Slumber Party Massacre 2 and Psycho 3. Uh, she was a little bit of a, you know, go-to girl in that little window of the 80s when you needed a uh, uh, a lovely young victim type. So there you have it. Damn. Well, I, welcome to Los Angeles where actors either uh, become producers or else uh, they go on to manage uh, real estate. Roy the paramedic kind of resembled Lou Ferrigno to me. Did you guys get any of that? Yeah, uh, there, there, there's kind of a there, there's kind of a dopey dollar store Lou Ferrigno thing that he's got going on. Uh, and and you, when you look at his son, you can see that the apple fall doesn't fall too far from the tree. I mean, in yeah. terms of these characters, poor Joey was genetically predisposed to uh, to be just a, a chump. Now we have a diner waitress who's going to go out on a date with the odious, bald, orderly guy. Um, and she says, I'm going to party! And she hears a window break, and she smiles to herself and says, Billy? So I guess her boyfriend usually breaks windows at her place of business while waiting for her to doll up. <laughs> then we get another poor cat being flung by a grip. Except this one hits... <laughs> This poor cat hits its head on the side of the booth that it's chucked at. So I was just wondering, like, where is the cat supposed to have come from that its trajectory is is going to have it fire its own head into the side of the booth in the diner? I don't know. At the beginning of two, it's it's clear that a grip is kind of underhanding the cat through the window. And in this one, it's like they they (laughs) launch it from the catapult. It's like it comes from an, an overhead arc, and uh, she dodges it. And yeah, it, it went, uh, then we cut to the cat landing, 
and it's like cracking its head against the side of the scene. <laughs> and uh, this woman is inexplicably excited to go yeah. on a date, to go on a date with this horrible guy. Well, I, I will. This was this was something I thought because yeah, I have the same thing where she pokes her head out and you're like, is this one of those moments with a just disgustingly unattractive man and inexplicably with this really hot woman? But then he pulls out all the cocaine. Yeah. Right. And I thought, all right, I know why she's partying with this guy. Right, right. No, that does help to sell the beat, uh, yeah. I have to say. And then especially when she sees the cocaine later, yeah. she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna snort this right off the footwell of your car where you put your foot all the time right. when you're right. driving. Um, he's laying into the horn. You're talking, Mike, about characters being impatient. Like, these two just sort of rotate being... Uh, uh, you know, shitty because he's angry that she's taking so long. She's completely oblivious to him making all this racket with the horn and everything. So then once he's dead, now she's the impatient one and, uh, you know, comes back out and essentially a poorly blocked, uh, poorly executed kill that means nothing and is very forgettable. Takes yeah, place. I mean, she pokes her head out and kind of goose around with him, and then uh, and she's like, "Hey, I, I need a couple of minutes to uh, kind of clean up the diner before I join you." And like two seconds later, the guy's like, "Come on, bitch, where are you?" Blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. And then when she comes outside and he's not in the car, uh, same thing. Like, yeah, instead of like a rational person going, "Oh, he stepped away to do something," uh, you know, she gets in the car and is immediately like. I'm cold. Where are you? Ah, this isn't funny. Like instantly, like no one has any projection of, of, of human experience in this movie. It's like their, their immediate thought is that people are out to get them or playing jokes on them or being mean for zero reason. I think part of it is that just the writers don't understand drama to the point that they feel that they need to gin up conflict constantly. Yeah, yeah. It it seems like uh, the the MO of this entire movie is we're going to crank everything up to 11. It's like, you know, the characters, again, don't have a whole lot of screen time because there's so many of them. So in every scene that they do get, it's got to be, you know, to to the, the cheap seats. Right, they're overacting like crazy with dialogue that's already exaggerated. Vic, you mentioned the visions that Tommy is having throughout the film, visions and nightmares that Jason is back, and I think that the movie is half-heartedly wanting us to believe that Jason is back, and it's maybe not just in Tommy's mind, and it's somewhat playing a game with the audience. What do you guys think about the, the visions and the idea of we're supposed to be wondering, is it Tommy? Is it someone else? Is it really Jason? And how that plays out. I mean, I certainly interpreted it as they're really trying to sell us on Tommy as a red herring. Um, And, and ultimately setting up, I suppose his, his transition at the end into being our, our new Jason. He, he sort of conveniently disappears at times when Jason is showing up and killing people. And so I suspect they, you know, as an audience member, we're supposed to be going, oh, I bet it's Tommy. Um, uh, and so I think that's probably dramatically the purpose of the uh, the, the visions um, is just it's it's like we said, it's it, because this one is a whodunit. Uh, they're really trying to set us up with a, a, a variety of, of possible killers um, yeah. to discover that it's the guy you barely noticed. 
Right, right. I mean, and there are a lot of very obvious clues whenever they show Roy. Yeah. I mean, the camera is like inexplicably lingering on him long after it should have be moving on. And mm-hmm. it's just him staring at something, you know, when we have no idea why up until the end. Um, yeah. They're trying to lay the track for that. But yeah, I mean, like the reason this movie becomes so dull is that, you know, it doesn't do a very good job of playing with those you know, those games of our expectations and doubts and red herrings and all that. I mean, basically it just keeps cycling these broad types on the, on the, onto the screen and none of them are likable or interesting. There's not a single real person in the movie. Everyone is mannered and artificial. So this is why the film really ran into trouble with the MPAA because it introduces character after character so they can be killed in perfunctory fashion. You know, a weapon swings, you get eyes reacting, a sound effect, and then that's it. But apparently there was quite a bit more gore and the MPAA basically said, look, this is so obviously, you know, the pornography of violence and, you know, there's some, traditional nudity as well which they largely left in thank god but (laughs) (laughs) like they really cut the kills because like there's no thematic or artistic justification to anything in the film so you can't get away with anything because Mm -hmm. the franchise is in the hands of inept half-hearted filmmakers at this point the movie has zero juice well yeah it's interesting something that you just kind of put your finger on is this is the extremely rare example of an American movie in which uh, there's uh, some coiling on the side of violence, but the sex is just fine. Right. right. 99% of the time, it's the exact opposite around. Um, Circling back a little bit, I I want to touch on the visions. Uh, The visions are another idea that in and of itself is actually kind of interesting but is ineptly handled i think that at the beginning of the movie uh what they should have done in my own humble opinion is to open with uh one of tommy's visions not just a dream but actual vision uh so let us know that he's uh seeing jason Voorhees because then when he's reluctant to get out of the van when he's reluctant to speak to people when he's shy and uh socially inept we're not saying they're wishing that we could step through the screen and pummel him with our fists. Um, right. Cause he is a, just an extremely uh, obnoxious character. Uh, and it's not until we're introduced to his visions that you start going, Oh, okay. I, okay. I, I feel bad for wanting to pummel him now. Yeah. Of. That's a really Sorry. good point. Like, yeah, they could have established. So we sympathize with him because they've established his, uh, torment of being constantly seeing this guy, you know, around every corner. And wouldn't that drive you nuts? You know? Yeah. And, uh, uh and, uh, at the end when at long last Tommy, uh, faces down, you know, his, his, his Fears. Torment, yeah, his tormentor in real life, he walks into that barn. There's Jason Voorhees, or at least a facsimile thereof. Uh, and what the film does not do inexplicably is to play the game of at first he thinks it's another vision. Uh, if you guys have seen Absentia, right. that was actually one of my favorite beats in that whole thing is we have this woman who keeps having these uh, kind of nightmare visions of uh, her missing husband. And then spoiler alert, spoiler, 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 spoiler alert, when the guy actually shows up for real, uh, you know, when she first sees him on the street, she actually goes out of her way to ignore him. 
And, and it's not until he's really like, no, it's me. I'm really me that she actually believes him. And, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, a stronger team would have thought to include something like that in the ending, but they did not. So, or even to get more out of that showdown, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but yeah. we go through all this, all these scenes setting up that Tommy has, he's been preparing himself. He's been training, he's learned you know, martial arts, he's got knives, he's, you know, the knife at least comes back, but that showdown lasts for five seconds, and it's Tommy, you know, on his ass, stabbing Jason in the leg with the knife, like, you know, like, can he execute some, some, a roundhouse or something, like, yeah, they don't even have a fight scene, the two of them, yeah, it's ludicrous, um, yeah, Mike said something interesting a while back there that I, I don't understand, yeah, I mean, this is the country where violence, you know, pour it on, man. Give us as much violence as you want. But, oh, no, a, a nipple or something or a woman, you know, orgasming? No, we can't have that. Um, and this movie kind of gets it exactly the opposite, where we've got this amazing boob shot of the girl in the woods, but the violence is is really tame. Uh, so let's move on to that. The girl in the woods uh, is one of the nymphos, and her nympho if, – if, well, guys can't be nymphos, but whatever, satyriasis or whatever you call the male version of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the actress's name is Debbie Sue Voorhees. Yeah, she, she must have walked into the casting, and there was like, uh, Voorhees, huh? All right. <laughs> and, uh, and taking one look. I don't think the she... boobs hurt. Well, I let me just put this out there. Uh, she is fucking gorgeous, this girl. Uh, it, it, she is mind-numbingly hot. Uh, and by far uh, the hottest chick that I've seen in these movies. Uh, it's interesting. You know, the last episode we did the Machete Awards, and I kind of had, had to half-heartedly vote for the twins. I mean, they're not super hot, but they're hot for these movies. And this girl is fucking flat-out gorgeous. And uh, it's not... I think by an accident that she gets a, a lengthy nude scene where she just kind of lolls about naked <laughs> on a blanket in the woods. I like her little contented moans that she makes to herself when she's alone here. Her name is Tina, which is funny because the previous two hot girls from the Machetes were the two Terries, uh, and the other twin's name was Tina. Yep. So. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, if a, if a girl in a Friday the 13th movie is named Terry or Tina, she's probably hot. It's, it's the equivalent of a red shirt. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, wait, can we talk for a second about the, the temporary farmhand who gets, who gets axed in this? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yes. Dude. Like, I just, I find it so, uh, this movie has, it, it has such a high body count that they literally can't fit every death into it like matt the head doctor who would seem to be you know a significant character we just find him you know nailed to a tree yeah, um, but somehow fine. they work in this temporary farmhand um <laughs> you know that was another 1930s thing you know like yeah. the farmhand shows up at the redneck's house and is like you know, in a total scene that hasn't happened since the Depression, basically, he's like, you know, hey, I need a hot meal. Can I, like, fix your fence posts or something? Like, I'm good with my hands. And, and you know, so he trades, like, dinner for some work around the farm. And so, again, you think that this character, like, well, that's kind of different or whatever. 
he only exists to show up and watch this couple for a minute and then get killed. Yeah, he does. He's not even cleaning the chicken coop, which is what he's which is what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's right. Dude, that's I, right. He just wanders off into the woods to see if there are <laughs> teenagers having sex. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is. I mean, again, we're talking about like an older sensibility. Uh, this is like a character who like wandered in from the grapes of wrath. Uh, <laughs> right. and, and, and it's funny because I it, it's a character who's played with like a lot of gravitas. Like mm-hmm. uh, he has a quiet nobility to him. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, uh, an actor who seems like he's played in a lot of uh, uh, Westerns, Westerns. Uh, you know, and, and he's interacting with these two like super off the wall, kooky characters. And, you know, he goes like, ma'am, I'll just need a hot meal. I'll do any work around the farm. And she's like, well, you get his cream and scoop out the shit, the chicken coop. Yeehaw! He's like, all right, ma'am, I will do that for a hot meal. I'll be fine to do that. And then, then what does he do? He goes wanders off in the woods, and uh, he's actually the heavy-breathing POV. Yeah. There. Uh, yeah, he, he, yeah he's, he's, he's the red herring of that scene where uh, we get a heavy-breathing POV. We think, oh, no, here's a serial killer, and it's actually this guy. <laughs> But don't worry, the killer is 10 feet behind him. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, this scene does give us the first glimmers that uh, all is not completely hopeless. Because we, we actually do get a couple of interesting things. Uh, one is uh, the lovely Miss Voorhees lolling about in her birthday suit, which is an absolute delight. Uh, but then she gets stabbed through the eyes with a pair of shears. And uh, the killer poses her in such a way that she's rolled over. And when her Lothario comes back, uh, at first he thinks that she's fallen asleep, I believe. And yeah. uh, why he wandered off in the first place, I'm not absolutely sure. Because so his he activity... Says, he says yeah, to yeah. wash up, which I also found odd. Yeah, oh, yeah that's right. I, I, his, his, uh, his stated activity is to go wash up. And so he goes down by a creek, takes off his shirt, skips rocks, and then he picks up a stick and <laughs> with it. Uh, and then he finally wanders back to uh, hang out with the lovely Miss Voorhees. And uh, uh, he thinks that she's asleep. He rolls her over, and her eyes are stabbed out, and she's dead. And uh, that's kind of a cool moment. And his reaction of fear is uh, actually organic. It's the first, like, actual, like, really human thing that I've seen in, in this entire movie up until now. Uh, and then he backs, he, in terror, he backs up against a tree. And we get the first uh, interesting kill of the movie, which is uh, the killer wraps a piece of leather around his head and loops it through a ring and, and twists it. So the pressure cracks his skull open. And uh, that's pretty rad. Uh, and, of course, the killer showed some pretty amazing foresight in knowing exactly which tree that the guy would back up against and would have the leather strap ready. Be that as it may... We're going to take our joys uh, uh, where we can get them in this film. Couldn't it have been a belt? That's what I, I thought it was. Yeah. I thought it was his belt, but yeah. you know, I don't yeah, know. That what. seemed like a piece of equipment. It seemed, yeah. like, to my mind, I read it as like something that you would use like as a lumberjack to climb a tree. Perhaps, mm. perhaps the temporary farm worker was uh was using it for something uh, yeah, yeah 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 you know the temporary farm worker also uh, you know another thing that uh you know kind of john you kind of brought up that there there are a million kills in this movie and most of them are kind of perfunctory and um the thing i, I in a lot of these kills uh the moments the weapon enters the victim's body they just kind of fall down and die i mean they're like kids on a playground 
you know, and in the case of the temporary farm worker, like, uh, you know, the killer slams like a, like a wooden stake into his gut. And the reaction is literally, oh, and he falls down. And he's just kind <laughs> yeah, of, yeah, it's like he, he, he was struck by a bout of narcolepsy or something. You know, right. he, he just, the eyes shut and he just goes limp. Oh, it's, you got me! Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or or in a old, you know, Cowboys and Indians black and white serial where you just get shot and kind of like twitch for a second and then drop. They're just going through the motions on most of these kills. I I agree though, Mike, that with the belt twisting around his skull is 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 disturbing on a couple of levels, but not so much as the part that you mentioned before, which I really do like when he finds his girlfriend and there's something horrible. As the audience, we know she's dead. So we're watching for, you know, 10 to 15 seconds of him walking up and she's, you know, posed in such a way that we can't be sure we don't see the damage done to her. So that it's just, it's creepy dread knowing what happened to her and that he's about to discover it. And you kind of empathize with the horror of that. I mean, can you just imagine returning to you know, someone that you've just slept with and whatever, maybe they're your, your, their lover or, or they mean more to you than that. The horror of just discovering that they're dead. Like that, that's something that I think we can all imagine or relate to. Yeah. As he's walking up to that body, that is the first uh, example of true uh, crafted suspense in this movie. Yeah. And so for like one, uh, for one scene, the movie kind of forgets to suck for a little bit. Yeah, I would say this whole sequence, like because of all the attributes that we've talked about, it's probably the best scene in the movie and pretty good. But another good scene is Demon mm. and his van filled with weird foods. He's got... <laughs> I, 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 uh, let me just, I, I, if I was going to vote in the Machete Awards for favorite character in this movie, it would definitely be Demon. I love Demon. <laughs> he's fantastic. Well, he's got the pizza. He's got Mexican egg rolls, tacos. Yeah. And played, by the way, by Miguel A. Nunez Jr., who would go on to be Juana Man. Oh, yeah. Really? Well, he was also in Return of the Living Dead. I know. No, it was one of those things where I saw him and I was like, all right, I know that guy. And and was, you know, instantly on uh, IMDb looking it up and going, oh, yeah, I remember you from 700 Things. Um, I did find it interesting that his his girlfriend is pretty attractive in that scene. Yeah. But he lives in a van. (laughs) I know. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was wondering about that. And, uh, you know, to my mind, it's due to uh, small town sexual economics. Uh, you know, there, there's there's I mean, Demon is a really flashy cat. You know, any other dudes that are going to be hanging around this small town are going to look like mud in comparison. To yeah, he's kid, got so. a tricked out van. He's got the Jerry curl. He's got the Michael Jackson garb. I mean, he's got silk pillows in the van. He's got his game. Together. He's got an- a- and enchiladas on command. My recommendation to you is to pass on the enchiladas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the enchiladas don't do poor demon any good. No. I did think there were two things that struck me about this scene. The first is that that Miguel seems to really obviously be doing an Eddie Murphy impression. Did anybody else get this? I mean, down to like the leather, the, the you know, the, the pleather outfit. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Uh, yeah. 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 That was that was what I felt from that. Um, but then also, so there's the scene. You know, Tommy has his his fight with uh, 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 the, the, the local yokel Beverly yeah, Hillbilly Redneck. biker goon. Yeah, 
Um, and the so then Pam comes running over, and Tommy stalks off, and she goes, you know, Reggie, come on, we gotta go. And Reggie runs over there. And when we go when we go back to to Reggie while he's there with the girls and before he leaves, they're like they're down to the roach of a joint. <laughs> right. yeah. Which yeah. means that they were smoking it while Pam was there. Right. Oh yeah. There's, there's a copious amount of drug use in this movie. I mean, that's kind of the other, you know, thing that I was thinking while I was watching this film again uh, for the first time in a really long time is uh, this seems like uh, you know if they're not screwing, then they're doing drugs or both. You know, and uh, you know if someone's not dying, they're engaging in some sinful activity. You know, yeah. uh, but I, I, you know, I, I can see why Reggie would want to hang out with this dude. I mean, it is his older brother, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I, given the fact that he's fully mobile, he can start that van and drive away any time they wants. Obviously, Demon is a flashier dude who belongs in New York or L.A. And why the one and only reason that he could be hanging around this dumb little hick town would be to hang out with uh, his younger brother, you know. Um, and it's weird that granddad doesn't want him hanging out unless he knows that demon is, uh, you know, down with the ganja. He, know, yeah. he knows he's a bad influence, he's supposedly. He's a homeless pothead living in a van. <laughs> what could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> you know, the drug use thing, um, I read on several sources online that this production was supposedly plagued by cast and crew's drug use. What? Yeah. Heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> if, well, I, is, if I had a monocle, it would crack. Uh, Mike, you do make a good point that there is there you know there there is a little bit of genuine emotion in this scene. Like I, you do like it when when Demon gives his brother the ring. Yeah. Um, and you get yeah you get this sense that Reggie really looks up to him and and um, I mean, and the most you know, non sequitur advice ever. Yeah. Stay safe, reckless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone uh, thought that that juxtaposition of ideas was clever. <laughs> yeah. Stay safe, reckless. <laughs> and we were talking about last time um, why characters come into and out of scenes is inexplicable. But this movie is far more heinous. Why does the Beverly Hillbilly biker goon with the pilot hat and the goggles even show up at the trailer park? Why? Yeah. Yeah, I get the feeling that he doesn't have a whole lot to do with this time, and he just kind of yeah. randomly rides around. And uh, this 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 was a random encounter. Uh, yeah. Like uh, he, he he didn't have uh, you know errands to run at the trailer park or anything like that. So Tommy quits moping around and runs off into the woods after using his martial arts on the on the goon. Yeah. And then old poor demon, the damn enchiladas. Uh, they they catch up to him. We have yet another shit scene. He goes into the shit box. Um, and this is one of my favorite bits in the whole film. The gal pal, Anita, she's shaking the shitter. And he gets mad. And she's like, oh, lighten up, demon. You'll feel a lot better after you shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, in terms of strangeness of human behavior, yeah. uh, this is one of the top scenes. Because... He, uh, he, he's been eating his own enchiladas, and they've backed up on him. So he runs off to the uh, the outhouse. And uh, to play a joke on him, his girlfriend kind of shudders the uh, the aluminum siding. And uh, again, we have a character who has zero sense of patience because his immediate reaction is, cut it out, bitch, or something like that. Like, he starts calling her names. Yeah. 
Like does. no one has any sense of humor in this movie. Of course. And um, then they then they start singing a duet. Let's yeah, not they, they sing a Motown esque duet <laughs> while he's taking a dump, supposedly. <laughs> yes, and uh, it, it's only when she stops singing along with him that he suspects that something is weird and immediately loses his shit again and starts calling her a bitch again. Yeah, and then obviously he's in a fatal trap at this point. You know, here comes this piece of metal spearing through the aluminum siding walls are all around him, but he doesn't really make an effort to escape. He puts his back to one wall, and of course that's the wall that the thing delivers the coup de gras. But Mike, you mentioned as we were watching it, you like the fact that this guy gets wounded initially, it jams him in the leg, and we draw it out a little bit, like this character yeah. isn't just instantly snuffed. Yeah, because uh, earlier... I- on, uh, I had been thinking, wow, these characters keep dying like they're in an old Western, where it's like, you know, that kind of, ow, you got me, you know, uh, reaction to death. Uh, and this was the first one where I actually felt uh, the killing, because he's wounded first, and uh, you know, this metal spike goes through poor Demon's leg, uh, and he reacts with uh, obvious agony to it. So it's like, you know, I, I, you know this kill is not a game. You know, he dies in a horrible manner. Uh, you know, first he's wounded, then he backs up against a wall like an idiot, and uh, he gets speared through it, and it looks cool, but it's also yeah. like, I mean, that, this is the first kill where I'm besides the leather strap, where I was sitting there going, you know. Yeah. I had, I had exact, exactly the same reaction, that it is that notion that he gets wounded, and, you know, I mean, he's genuinely, he looks genuinely terrified, like you feel that, the, you know, there's some claustrophobia to it, it's uh, it, it is more interesting than yeah the rest of the uh, uh, machetes through the gut or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I do like old Miguel A. Nunez Jr. You know he's a he's a bright spot in this film for sure. He's, he's in the he's in the running for the most famous uh, the most famous actor to come out of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean he's no Kevin Bacon, but uh, he's got no a Kevin resume. Bacon, but... Yeah, definitely top five. <laughs> it's not Roy, I'll tell you that, or my landlord. <laughs> so from there, we have more wonderful dialogue where characters are running around like with a list of names. Where's Reggie? Where's Tommy? Where's Bob and Joe and Susie Q and whatever else? They're just listing names running around. Um, and then we get back to the, the Rednecks and this hilarious... Um, coup de gras for them and the one thing that was dynamically shot is when the angry uh son after getting roughed up by tommy is just doing donuts around on the motorcycle and (laughs) he's just buzzing the house over and over and over and the camera is mounted on the handlebars and we're filming at his face as he's yelling and screaming and roaring and speeding around and it actually is pretty dynamic i like the way it was shot yeah, it is for me one of the more wildly entertaining moments. Yeah, uh, they actually take advantage of how broad these characters are, and in this case, you know, the fact that he got his ass beat by Tommy has uh, sent him over the edge. And so we we have this dumb redneck galoot uh, just doing donuts on a motorcycle around the house, going, "He hurt me, ma! He hurt me!" <laughs> and she's yelling, "I'm making you dinner, yeah, fuck yeah, one!" Yeah. 
I, and every uh, I, every time he uh, calls for her, she just yells, "I'm making your stew! I'm making your stew! <laughs> he hurt me, ball! He beat me up!" She's I'm just throwing. Your stew. <laughs> she's throwing veggies in a pot as we speak. Like, how is that going to be ready by the time he gets in? Like, yeah, uh, she's she's literally throwing whole carrots in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. Into what looks like just water. Into like, a pot just, of water, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At least they eat healthy, organic vegetables in that hovel. Well, you know? yeah. I, I, uh, apparently, if you're not cooking meth, then you're, you're growing uh, healthy, organic vegetables. Uh, although, speaking of healthy and organic vegetables, her death is spiced by the fact that she is holding a tomato when uh, the killer comes in and does her in. And she goes face first into the stew. Uh, and while she is in her death throes, she squeezes the tomato. Yes, yes. And there's the lingering close-up of the seeds and the juices, you know, squirting out between her fingers as she squeezes this fruit. It was, yeah. uh, well, you know, tomato's not really a fruit or a vegetable, is uh, it? We let's not really even know. start this one. <laughs> let's, let's start the, the tomato-fruit-vegetable debate. Um, yeah, uh, it is funny that in terms of the, the, the pacing of the scene, uh, we have her redneck goonish, uh, child buzzing around the house and, uh, an ax comes out and chops off the dude's head. And, uh, when he, when she hears the sound of silence, she assumes that he's now done with his temper tantrum and is on, and is on his way in for dinner. And that's when she's like, this dude's almost ready. Like no, she says, "Knew you couldn't pass up on my stew." Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. That's right. So, and I uh, now she crushes the tomato instead. I wonder if Roy tried the stew after. Yeah, that's her last pot of stew. And given the fact that they smear dirt all over her face, <laughs> yeah. uh, and she goes face first into the stew, I would say that uh, if the killer were to stay and try the stew, that would be unhygienic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the song that the goth chick is dancing to when we cut back to the halfway house is infinitely worse than what Crispin Glover was rocking out to in part four. It bears no similarity to what you would think this chick would listen to or anyone would. It's like this weird ersatz disco track. Mm-hmm. And because they used a lot of what felt like catalog music. Yeah. Like, like they, uh, you know, the, the kind of discs that you get for like uh, just generic music uh, that's unlicensed. It feels right. like about 95% of the music in this movie what, came, came from like one of those collections and doesn't fit. Like, there's no right. way in 100 million years that uh, our little emo goth punk rock girl is listening to like this elevator music, and but- especially when she's bopping around the room. Well, then apparently they did get a real song because we cut back to her. She's dancing to a different song, and it's much better uh, in, during the actual kill sequence. And I can't for the life of me figure out why they didn't just use that song for all of her dancing around her room stuff. But in any event, this I looked it up, and it was a real song from the period. And I do think her dance moves are awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I think her direction was do the Vogue. But before that, remember, Stuttering Jake uh, comes to her for romantic advice, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and she goes, "Can it wait?" And basically blows him off, even though she I, and all she's doing is staying in the middle of the room reading a magazine, <laughs> which which uh, I, I thought was intentionally funny. <laughs> well, I mean, her character. What's interesting is like, she's literally defined as she likes loud music. 
Like that's, <laughs> that is, and you wonder like, what did she do to get in here? Like, was she, you know, is she just listens to rock music too loud. And her parents were like, you're going to the halfway house. Like, well, yeah, I mean, she showed a tenuous grip on reality when she forgot that uh, Joey had been axe murdered the day before. That's true. Yeah, she's she's at home. She's listening. To, she's listening to the rock music. She's miss setting the dinner table, and eventually, you know, a good Christian mom and dad are just like, "We've got to do something with this girl." <laughs> so yeah, we get another monotonous kill there, and. Um, my landlord is watching, uh, a movie with the stuttering guy and he ineptly really awkwardly, uh, tries to proclaim his feelings for her and she laughs at him, but not in like a cruel way, just more kind of like, are you for real? Where is this coming from? Kind of a way. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about stuttering Jake is, uh, he immediately tries to cover himself by backtracking and claiming that he was just kidding. Yeah, uh, yeah. She starts laughing. You're just like, I didn't really mean it. I didn't mean it. And then he throws a temper tantrum and runs upstairs. Yes, to be dispatched. Yeah. the uh, The interesting thing about uh, killing Vi, though, is uh, the killer in this case uh, sneaks into her room and then hides in the closet. Yeah. Uh, so when she turns, you know, she hears the door open. She turns around and he's not there. Why the killer decides to drag it out the, uh, an extra beat, I don't know, but. I don't know. It's fine. I mean, there, there's something kind of cool about, you know, you hear a weird noise in your room and this time there really is a psycho killer hiding in your closet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I kind of like that when she first turns around and she hears something, but there's no one apparently in the room, but you know, he's got to be somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of cool. Her own love of loud rock and roll music is used against her. So yeah, anyway, Robin um, goes upstairs you know, strips down, walks around in her cute little panties for a while, jumps on top of the bug bed and finds um, stuttering kid dead staring at her in the in the bed. And that is very part one with the, you know, the kid on the bunk bed above Kevin Bacon and his girlfriend. And then the kill itself here is a callback to part one where, a uh, hand clamps down on Robin's forehead and rams uh, a blade, in this case the machete, uh, up through the mattress and pops it out of her chest in a very, you know, not uh, creative kill based on what we've seen before. But that, that close-up of Stuttering Jake's dead face uh, yeah. in the bed with her, that actually is kind of creepy. I actually really like that. Yeah. The killer does a lot of placing bodies around this scene, which we're which yeah. we're sort of used to with with Jason, who seems to be doing it for effect. But what I find interesting, we get as everybody comes back next, the killer then moves everybody again into Tommy's room. Yes. Right. Yes. Which uh, I think is is again they're they're trying to set up like the like as though the 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 killer is perhaps trying to frame Tommy for this. Um, although nobody, nobody talks about it. Nobody says, Oh my God, they're in Tommy's room. Where's Tommy? Like nobody even puts it together. Well, I I can tell you, they say, where's Tommy 437 times in the course of the film, but (laughs) (laughs) well, yeah, I, that, that was kind of interesting to me is, uh, bodies get moved, but they don't get posed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he they're kind of piled. Yeah. He just, he just kind of picks them up and moves them around the house a lot. Um, and uh, I will say that one of the most clumsily blocked scenes in this 
film that's full of clumsily blocked scenes is uh, when Reggie the Reckless goes into the room and he sees a bunch of dead bodies and he screams. And then he comes outside and Pamela is there and she does the exact same thing. She goes into the room, she sees a pile of bodies and screams. Uh, and then the two of them uh, realize that there is a killer in the house. And then when they go downstairs, uh, Jason bursts through the door. He had already been inside the house, uh, but I guess he went outside because he wanted to uh, have the effect of crashing through a door and scaring them. <laughs> I know. I noticed that as well. Uh, the stripes on this hockey mask are blue. And it's interesting that the hockey mask in the opening sequence has the blue stripes. But then whenever we see Jason in the visions, it's the red stripes and it's got the machete wound in the front of the mask where he took the shot in the head in the previous films. So this is the first introduction of the new Jason on screen when he when he comes crashing through the door. By the way, backing up a little, it was kind of hilarious that Pam's first response when she runs into uh, a scared Reggie after he just discovered the bodies. Her response is to say, it's Pam, it's Pam. Right. Like, yeah. oh, did you forget <laughs> who I am? Is yeah, that what's yeah, happening? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the, 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 uh, the, the movie thinks that he is so hysterical that he uh, doesn't even recognize his friend and she has to remind him, but uh, uh, he's, you know, we're, we're just not there. Right. Right. So anyway, this movie has so many bigger problems than the killer not being Jason. But in a way, I'm kind of glad that Jason is not sullied by this film with his presence. It is interesting to me that uh, uh, he then throws a body through a window. And uh, yeah, again, we're, we're, you know, if we're going to do like callback tropes of, of the franchise, you know, especially from 4, I mean, we have to throw somebody through the window sometime. Um, right. Yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely a part of the, the Jason Voorhees playbook. And that's what makes me think that this really is a spirit, yeah. uh, that it is an evil force. Because even though Roy, the ambulance driver, has never met personally Jason Voorhees or been the subject of Jason's uh, modus operandi, he still plugs directly into all that. And I, again, I realize that I, I'm kind of probably selling something that is ineptly done. You know, the shitty writing version is they just want you to think that's Jason. Maybe we don't know. Uh, but in this case, I really think that it is like kind of spirit. And uh, that spirit is going to have the killer act in the same way no matter who it inhabits. Well, it's weird, like, if you look at what happened with Roy is that, okay, so he's abandoned this child, but he's kind of keeping tabs on him. But he's ashamed of him or he doesn't want to you know, engage with him for whatever reason. And he finds that this kid has been, his son has been brutally murdered. And his response to that is, well, maybe I should just randomly start murdering everyone. Yeah, that'll show him. Well, yep. it's, it strikes me that it is, again, sort of a throwback if you were trying to reboot the franchise and get back to the roots of it. I mean, that there is a parallel between... Roy's motivations and Pam and Pamela Voorhees motivations sure, in yes. that these, these people, meaning, you know, this, the people in this place or whatever are responsible for my son's death and I'm going to take revenge on all of them. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. I, if, if uh, they had been watching him better, he would still be alive. X, Y, Z. Again, yeah. we, you know, we, we lose a, a damaged son who is, uh, uh, you know, kind of a mongoloid, but in, 
his own way is innocent and doesn't deserve his untimely demise and uh, his reaction is to uh, begin murdering everybody. So. And it's interesting that obviously Roy must have seen that parallel because the idea is it resonated with him that Pamela and then Jason took up this you know, bloody crusade for one another. And he's like, yeah, that's the fitting way for me to deal with this is to, you know, don the mask and persona of Jason, because that's how you deal with it. When, um, your, you know, beloved, innocent, vulnerable child is taken from you. Well, I, I here, here's another missed opportunity, uh, is, uh, this killing Roy, doesn't just wear a hockey mask. He also wears a full-headed prosthetic of Jason Voorhees. So from the back, it seems like it's uh, it's a big, bald man. Uh, and it's only when he finally dies at the end that the mask, is, that not only is the hockey mask off, but the rubber mask underneath it is ripped open, and we see that it's Roy. So, you know, I, I, it's not just enough to put on a hockey mask and, and take up the machete. Like, he tries to become Jason Voorhees. Now, the missed opportunity comes in from the fact that where else are you going to get a Jason Voorhees mask besides from Tommy's room? I mean, he's right. the only character in this entire ensemble who has the skill and motivation to create such a mask. But um, uh, And if he had that laying around, then we could go, oh, the ambulance driver creeps in and steals it. But, uh, you know, in this movie, he just kind of has it well, following the following the logic of the you know if we were if we were uh, uh, you know following the the logic of the of rebooting it from the perspective of the first one, that would suggest too that that at some point Joey would resurrect from the dead. <laughs> yeah, wow! <laughs> and start killing everyone for killing his father. <laughs> I think he would just offer everyone a chocolate bar. Yeah, exactly. and, and, and then, yeah, yeah. Everyone's cheats. yeah, in, 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 <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, it would be Reg, uh, grown Reggie the Reckless uh, is fighting a, uh, a grown undead uh, Joey. Chocolate <laughs> on his face, blah, blah, blah. Matt is found off, de- off camera. He's been killed. He's been pinned to the tree with a railroad spike. So no payoff for that character. Then we end up uh, in a barn because we haven't seen that before. Oh, wait. No. Yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, that's the other thing that makes this reminiscent of three is we do have a barn. Yes. And, uh, and in, in which the uh, final confrontation takes place. Yeah, a lot of the shots are even composed really similarly with that sort of second story open, you know, the doors that open when you have the pulley where you would lift the bales of hay up into it exactly like the part yeah. three scenario. Uh, yeah. Really uncreative here. Um, it's fun when she's got the upper hand with the chainsaw. And Reggie is sort of cheering her on, and then the chainsaw won't start again. Um, that's like one of the only beats in the whole confrontation that I thought was um, amusing. Yeah, she, she's got a bad luck with the machinery, this girl, because uh, earlier on she's uh, driving down the road in her blue pickup truck, and it just kind of randomly craps out on her. Yeah. And uh, similarly, when she's in a, a chainsaw fight with Jason Voorhees, which is. Uh, uh, you know, to put it kindly, I would say that is an unimaginatively staged combat. But um, oh yeah, yeah, I, but uh, yeah, and the chainsaw just kind of craps out on her, and uh, she throws it at him and runs away. 
Yeah, the true curse of Crystal Lake is that mechanical things will fail at inopportune times. Yeah. Roy as Jason gets a free shot at a terrified Tommy who is as, you know, ineptly frozen as he was in his dream in the beginning. And Jason takes his free shot and he just kind of cuts open his chest a little. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think he uh, rolled his damage really low because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, throughout this entire movie, this is a character who can, like, walk up to you with a knife and you're instantly dead. And uh, when he's got, like, a full arm swing, he just kind of uh, grazes him in the chest, which is still enough to take out Tommy for most of the rest of the scene, though. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because I, watching Tommy uh, pathetically try to climb that ladder, uh, even after this grazed wound, uh, it does absolutely nothing for my esteem of this character. He's such a yutz. Oh, dude, yeah. And I, I mean, even when and uh, uh, John, this is actually something that I, I thought was interesting that you pointed out is uh, he gets to the top of the ladder and uh, Jason follows him up the ladder and he finds Tommy lying there, and you think that Tommy is just playing dead when in fact he actually is unconscious. He's uh, fallen unconscious from the pain and blood loss of his wound. And uh, again, as we've discussed in earlier episodes of this podcast, if you are unconscious, then you are safe from Jason Voorhees, even if you are a Jason Voorhees spirit uh, trapped in an ambulance driver's body. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like a bear, he sniffs around the body and lets it go because it's not doing anything. We skipped over Reggie with the tractor. Is that worth mentioning? He rams him with the tractor. They do do a nice job of setting it up with the, the or at least a vaguely subtle way of setting it up with the shot of the tractor as, as uh, Tommy arrives. How, how a boy that age knows how to operate heavy machinery is anybody's guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> the, the scene, like, it takes him so long to hit Jason. And then we talked about Jason, like, holding up his hand, you know, and, and you know, because he's blinded by the tractor. Yeah, uh, you, you, you know what I especially love about that scene is when uh, he runs over Jason with the tractor and uh, Reggie jumps off, we see that the lights aren't even on. Mm. So, uh, so... <laughs> well, and it, but it takes so, I mean, it's, it's right out of Austin Powers. It takes so long for him to get to Jason. He just kind of stands there waiting right. to get hit by the tractor. Right, yeah, yeah. He, he stands with one hand up because that will uh, give him a magical force skill to, uh, that, of anti-tractor protection. And uh, yeah, it is cool, though, that after he gets uh, felled by the tracker, he gets up and he's covered with blood and just kind of looks at the blood and says, all right, whatever, you know? Yeah, I like that. Like he's sort of saying, is this going to stop me? Hmm, no. Yeah. All right, onward. All right, well, onward for us too. So uh, Jason is knocked out of the window by, I believe, um, is it Reggie jumping on him or something? And we think yeah. maybe... We think maybe it's over, but he's still clinging to the edge, and he he climbs back up, and now it looks like he's going to pull Pam and Reggie off the edge. But now we, of course, get the genius, nobody ever could have thought of that, win for the characters, which is uh, Tommy revives himself. He's got the machete. I think he hits him, whatever. The dude falls into a, a big tray of open spikes that have been left outside this window. Uh, because that's SOP on a farm. And I, I had to laugh when, even when Tommy, at long last, finally does something that's cool and proactive, which is, in this case, uh, chopping the killer's arm 
Uh, he has to make a crybaby face when he does it. You know, it's right. like, no one in this in this movie has a any patience or b any dignity yeah so the mask busts open roy's face is revealed and the next scene they're at the hospital and the sheriff has roy's wallet and pages through it to explain everything to pam and the audience um, Roy has a picture of himself in his wallet, and then right after that, a picture of his son, Joey. Presumably when he's uh, uh, got some downtime, he sits in in the ambulance, and he flips between the two pictures uh, uh, to remind himself that there is so much family resemblance between the two. I have to say that if that was my kid, I might not claim him either. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, well, I, I guess I'll just kind of hang around in town to make sure he doesn't trip over his candy bars and impale himself. But, you know, that's about the extent of it. Yeah, he but, did uh, a really good job of keeping his son safe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, oh, so we also get a bunch of clippings of Jason-related stuff that I guess were also in the wallet. And included is a newspaper article with an exclusive photo of Jason wearing his hockey mask, which I love. Like, when did when did some intrepid <laughs> cub reporter from the Times, you know, catch uh, catch Jason uh, in a nice close up? Well, it, it is kind of reminiscent of the uh, stack of news clippings from Part Four that yeah. are used to motivate, uh, you know, Tommy, age ten or twelve, uh, to dress himself as Jason. And in that one, I also thought it was equally ludicrous that someone had done an artist sketch rendition of Dead Undead Jason. And <laughs> yeah. that Tommy uses as a template. I, how that would make its way into But, I, I, you know, these are the kind of newspaper articles that only exist in movies. Yeah, yeah, where, like, the editor on the city desk is like, you know, I like this article, but could we get an artist sketch of what the mongoloid kid would look like? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> were he to leap out of a lake and frighten that poor girl anyway now uh we have tommy going nuts again it's just a dream oh great okay and then jason shows up the real jason with the real mask with the red stripes and then he just disappears and tommy gets out of bed and he, we find that he's kept the blue mask in a drawer in the hospital, which uh, I, is very believable that they would yeah. let him take the oh, yeah. from the crime scene, the hockey mask. The window is breaking, and Pam walks in, and she's already been killed once in the sequence, but it was just a dream. And now uh, Tommy in real life is sneaking up behind her with the mask and a knife held aloft, and we realize that Tommy is now the Jason killer. Yeah, uh, I, I laughed at two, at two moments in the scene. The first was when uh, he opens the drawer, and there's the uh, hockey mask there, and uh, that, that, that I found amusing. And then he uh, rises up behind Pamela, and he stabs her with a giant butcher knife. Where he got that, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he kept it up, up in the same orifice where he kept the jackknife. I <laughs> presumably. But uh, it, it is funny that he also does the fake-out of the break window. Uh, yeah, like he he breaks the window and then hides behind the door, knowing that someone's gonna walk in and someone will be stabbed. But I mean, if we're gonna go to the idea of of the Jason spirit, I almost have to wonder if Jason's spirit comes to Tommy because Tommy is its preferred vessel, and keeps kind of appearing to him and saying, you know, you're mine. Let's do this. And due to the fact that Tommy refuses, it goes into a random guy. 
the idea being that I, I you know, people are gonna get murdered no matter what. It might as well be you. They do sort of, I mean, this idea gets explored in a much more direct, literal way when we get up to the final Friday. Yeah, that's right. Like, like, like someone eventually noticed the the ideas that Five was floating. And again, I mean, you know, I make no mistake, it's an absolutely terrible movie. But, you know, on paper, at the treatment level, at the conceptual level, there is something really intriguing uh, going on with this film that it just doesn't have the, the, the juice to pay off. Well, and they, they pull, I was, I was just looking at this, they, they try to pull a very similar uh, trick in Halloween Part 4, where you wind up ending with uh, uh, Jamie holding, the, you know, uh, uh, Jason's, uh, Michael Myers' niece, I suppose, holding this knife, and the idea is that she is, you know, she has somehow supplanted Michael Myers as the killer. And they, too, do absolutely nothing with it, you know, going forward in the series. It's interesting to me that there is another, you know, if you look at, at, at another successful slasher franchise, somebody, somebody tries unsuccessfully to pass the, uh, to pass the butcher knife uh, to the next generation, and it doesn't work. Right. I do, again, I just... just A new me. beginning that was short-lived. Yeah, yeah. I, I do again just to the the ineptness of of the execution because I mean there there is really kind of something there, and I, I think it's not they're they're just not making up whole cloth. I, I in you know in earlier episodes we had touched on the idea that you know uh, kind of like in the J horror curse movies you know that an evil act becomes its own thing, you know so letting you know boy Jason dies is an evil that gets into his mom, and after she's killed, it gets into, it resurrects Jason himself, if we're going to pay off his, his age differential. And uh, if we kill that guy, it's going to go somewhere else. I mean, it's either in the water of Crystal Lake, or it's in the props used by the killer, you know, la-da-da-da-da. But no matter what, that evil will be floating around and doing harm somewhere. Yeah. Are, yeah. are we at Crystal Lake for this? No, I don't know. Like, I mean, you're just getting the sense of like with the the newspaper clippings and everything, the proximity of what had happened. They're in the ballpark because yeah, because you know, it, even this film might not be so inept as to think that the way to treat Tommy Jarvis is to take him back to a secluded cabin. <laughs> it's like, right. <laughs> yeah, we've reopened Camp <laughs> One just for you. Yeah, watch out for the bears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So whatever it set out to do, the story is so thin and the characterizations are so heinous that the MPAA was particularly strict with the gore because it's pure exploitation. You can't justify anything under the mantle of theme or, or purpose. So we've got this large body count, but it's senseless, it's uninspired, and it's neutered to boot. So my uh, final analysis on this one is... One machete. Out <laughs> <laughs> of how many? Uh, on a on a <laughs> on a fifty <laughs> machete scale. The oh, New York okay. Times said this one, set in a bucolic halfway house for disturbed children, is not entirely without Grand Guignol humor, but almost. It appears to have been paced by a metronome. A joke followed by a murder followed by a joke followed by a murder. It's worth recognizing only as an artifact of our culture. I, too, would give this uh, one machete out of uh, either five or 13. I mean, it's just bad filmmaking. But, um, you know, somewhere in there, 
is the tantalizing element of a cool idea that's just not brought to fruition. And that, that's actually what makes this film uh, not just terrible, but also a little frustrating. You know, randomly, if I was going to have custodianship of this franchise, you know, I would have my Friday the 13th movie take place in the winter. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, what's Jason doing when it's snowing outside? You know? Does he hibernate with the bears? Does he curl up? <laughs> See, th- wouldn't that explain a lot if we cut to a cave and he snuggled up next to a grizzly? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're all wearing hockey masks. <laughs> John, it's it's hard to, to to have people you know in bikinis and skinny dipping and stuff in the in the winter. I think that's the that's the catch. Uh, I, I agree. That would what, be a that's what hot tubs and saunas are for. Then. Exactly. The, the polar bear club comes to comes to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is the thing. I would say that this movie works on 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 two levels. I'm going to give it one level as an artifact of our culture, but I think this is also a. This is a warning about the dangers of drugs, because John, if you're right that there was a lot of of uh, uh, excessive drug use going on by the cast and crew, um, this is what happens, you know. So uh, let's hope uh, when we get to six that the crew was was mostly sober, um, and we can expect a, a little more from it, or at least on a higher grade of nose candy. Yeah, get, get better drugs at least. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, We will close the door on the new beginning and mercifully uh, end that chapter. And I believe that the next film will be a little bit more fun to watch. New, new beginning. (laughs) The newer beginning. Yeah. Take care, guys. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, bye, guys. Bye.